Hey, this is Ryan Rogers, and I'm the pastor at the Palmer Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope that this message gives you a glimpse of how beautiful our God is. It's been a while since I've been here in person, and it's good to be here and worship together. Thank you for those who shared messages while I wasn't, gave me a break, and who did baptisms and let out in prayer. Um, We have a good team here. I appreciate you guys. And I just want to include all those who are watching online. A lot of empty seats here. And that's partially because it's beautiful weather and partially because the pastor's been telling people, you don't need to come to church to stay involved in church. We're doing 10 weeks of summer. We have these videos, these conversations. We can pursue these things wherever God puts us on Sabbath. But I'm grateful to be here with those who are gathered. We, uh, we're going to start with an emotional tone taking us way back into our history, 1863, when Abraham Lincoln stood on a battlefield in front of a crowd, and it was a cemetery for fallen Americans who fought in the Civil War, and he gave the Gettysburg Address. And we're going to actually take time, come on up here, and we're going to read the words of the Gettysburg Address. And so just you can put yourself in that emotional place What I hope you can hear in these words is our national value, very high value, for liberty and freedom. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that this nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, We cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. We have a very high value in our nation for liberty and freedom, and I don't want to belittle that at all, by the way I'm going to use this in illustration. But the point I want to make is 
We should celebrate this. We, we should enjoy the freedoms we have. But I'm aware in a very sad way of the tragic contrast that there is between our fight for national freedom and our indifference towards spiritual freedom. We give everything on this situation right here. We'll fight to the death while the majority of the citizens remain enslaved in the bondage of Satan. And that's just kind of normal. So we're going to look at Scripture today, celebrating freedom, but recognizing that many of us, even in free America, we very greatly misunderstand what true freedom is. And all too often, we miss out on its experience. We're going to go to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at two very weighty teachings. These are heavy. Slavery to sin and slavery to God. And I think these two things, slavery to sin, slavery to God, I think they can help us understand what true freedom is. So we're going to begin with slavery to sin. It was read for us uh, just a few moments ago, but in Romans 6, we see in verse 22, both concepts. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Slavery has some really negative associations cruelty and racism and injustice, and it's appropriate for us to feel some offense even at the word slavery. It's an ugly thing, and here we see it applied to something that's very ugly, sin, and then applied to something that's very beautiful, God. And slavery to sin is as bad as we can make it in, in description. It is a destructive, terrible, life-ending thing. I got a picture of slavery and the destructiveness of it when I listened to an audiobook. Anyone ever read or listen to the book 12 Years a Slave? Or maybe you watched the film? It's the memoirs of Solomon Northup. He was born a free man in New York. And he was black. He had a wife. He had two kids. He had an education. He had a job. He had papers to prove his freedom. But he was deceived by some slave traders. See, he was also a gifted musician. And some slave traders came to him, inviting him to be partners in an entertainment uh, gig. He would play his violin, and they would do what they do. Well, that was not their plan. So he, he agreed to go along, and they drugged him, and kidnapped him, and sold him into slavery. He was free, and he had papers to prove it, but every time he tried to explain himself, uh, he was beaten into silence. Nobody cared. He was in the hands of a slave master. And so in his 12 years a slave, he saw things that should never, ever be done. He saw mothers crying and pleading as their children were separated from them in slave trades. They couldn't go with their family. And he saw them punished for their crying and their pleading. He saw people ruled and belittled. His name was changed. All his personal property was gone. All his freedom of choice. It's a sick, 
terrible, destructive thing. And every bit of the destruction in Solomon Northup's story is true of us in our slavery to sin. And yes, it is that dramatic. I'm not being overdramatic. There's a slave master who's destroying life. And we kind of take it like it's just the way it always is. There's a better way. So we're going to look here at uh, a quick overview. It's, it's a long, uh, every verse in Romans 6 would take a while to go through, but the whole chapter teaches on this concept of slavery to sin. It actually begins with a different illustration. So here's a profile, quick profile of slavery to sin. Look at verse 4. It doesn't start with calling it slavery, it starts by calling it death. We were buried therefore with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So slavery to sin is called death. Slavery to God is called newness of life. Then skip down to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. The old self was crucified, and the reason was we were enslaved, and we had to die and have new life. Continue on to verse 7. For the one who has sinned, or for the one who has died to sin, has been set free from sin. Sin is something we actually have to be set free from. And verse 12. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, making you obey its passions. That's a picture of slavery to sin. It actually reigns like a king, like a master, like a, like a slave master. It reigns in the people who obey it, and then we obey the passions of sin. It's a picture of what it means to be a slave. 13, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Or if you look down at verse 19, it adds to the language of unrighteousness. It says, um, as members to purity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So a slave to sin gives its body to impurity and unrighteousness and lawlessness. It doesn't always want to do that, but it's a slave. It's controlled. It keeps giving itself to the wrong things. Verse 14. For sin shall have no dominion over you. Isn't that a dark word? Sin shall have no dominion over you. I don't want that to be a description of me. Being under the dominion of sin. Verse 17, it says, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. Once slaves to sin. Two more. It says in verse 21 that, it says, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the teachings of which you are now ashamed? So slavery to sin leads us to do things that, we, that are shameful. We are ashamed of the way we live in slavery to sin. And then in verse 20, uh, the end of verse 21, it says, for the end of those things is death. And it confirms that in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, it is that bad. That's a, a quick picture of slavery to sin. It, it takes you captive. It makes you obey evil passions. 
and then it kills you. It's a pretty terrible thing. And we might think it's too strong of language. Like, I might sin, but a slave of sin, that's like those people who are really bad and really caught up in sin. But here's some words of Jesus, just eavesdrop on a conversation Jesus had uh, that puts us right at the heart of this stuff. This is John 8, verse 33 and 34. It says, But they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here's the question I've been thinking about. I'm going to ask to you. Where is the protest? Where's the fight? So there was 51,000 Americans killed on that battle in Gettysburg. They fought for the freedom. There was 700,000 in the war. And if we go back a little further in our history to the Revolutionary War, where we were actually trying to gain that initially, that, that independence, here's the numbers of those who were killed in action. 6,800 Americans. Another 17,000 died as a result of related diseases they got. Another 6,100 were wounded. And another 20,000 were taken prisoner of war. And many of them died in that situation as well. So, there's been a fight. When we see injustice in our society today, people show up on the streets and they riot because it's wrong. But I'm just looking at the church saying, hey, there is an evil slave master guilty of a million counts of assault on our souls. Where's the protest? When do we stand up and say, no, this is not okay? to live just like this. I invite you into that protest. I invite you to be not okay with slavery to sin. You know when a lot of preachers preach about sin, they sound angry. I don't want to sound that way. Sometimes it comes across really depressing and condemning. But hey, we're all in the same boat. Every one of us, slave to sin, unless we're set free in Jesus. So I'm going to read a few statistics. And I don't want to read these statistics just to sound angry and depressing. It's really a sad tone that I come to these with. Like empathy, because we're all there. It's also a tone of urgency because we don't need to be slaves. There's freedom. So as you hear some of these statistics, don't feel guilt and blame and a finger pointing at you. Just feel in your heart a desire to be active in protest. This is not how we're going to live. So here are some statistics. I know statistics aren't perfect. Some statistics on slavery to pornography. You know that the NBA, NFL, and MLB is big business. You know the pornography industry makes more annual revenue than all three of those combined. Same thing with the, the networks of ABC, CBS, and NBC. Pornography has them beat. It's a big money maker. It's a lot of slavery to that. Pornography, when it's in a home, increases the chances of marital infidelity by 300%. So there's all these other destructive, relationship-destroying things that come with this slavery. You know that 11 years old is the average age 
that our children are introduced to this. And that statistically, 94% of them will, will be exposed to these things by the time they're 14. It's slavery. It's not just an addiction or a thing that's, uh, you know, a problem, an issue. It's a, it's a slave. Enslavement. Uh, statistics on substances. 38% of adults um, battle with illicit drug use disorder. That's a pretty high percentage. It's a pretty high percentage of people walking around battling with these destructive substances that destroy life. There's, it's an expensive thing, not that the money matters, the relationships matter and the people matter, but drug abuse and addiction cost American society more than $740 billion annual dollars because of loss of workplace productivity, healthcare expense, and crime-related costs. There's a slavery we have to technology, and technology is not inherently bad. Your iPhone is not sinful. But what it does is it gives us access to a lot of things that are. And it is so captivating that it makes slavery really easy. So I'm not saying that technology is bad. It's great stuff. I make all these videos and do these things. You can do great stuff with technology. But notice how susceptible we are to slavery when statistically, this is mind-blowing to me, Americans spend an average of five hours per day browsing the internet. That is so much of your time. And if you think, well, I don't do that. I only spend one. Then there's someone spending nine hours to balance out for you. That is a lot of hours. And the internet's a great thing. But oh, how it just makes us captive to this stuff. We, our eyes are just drawn to this light. We want more of this and spend our time there. People touch their phones an average of 2,617 times per day. We live in a world that is enslaved to domestic violence. These are so, such sad statistics. It's seen in the fact that every single day, on a typical day in America, 20,000 phone calls are made to domestic violence hotlines. It's a lot of people needing help. It's seen in the fact that every minute, there's 20 people, on average, being victims of domestic violence. It's seen in the fact, in the statistic, that one out of every four women has been a victim of severe domestic violence. Not just like little things. Severe. And one out of seven men have been victims of severe domestic violence. And that one in five women have been victims of rape. So that was the sad statistics. Maybe they're not perfectly accurate, but it gives a picture of not just little issues, but enslavement, doesn't it? And I'm not looking to make anyone squirm. What I'm looking at is a sad reality where there are people who want out of this stuff. They can't get out. Why? Because it's not just an issue. It's slavery. We don't just need help. We need a savior. We need someone who can break chains that are too powerful for me to break. I, just, I try and I just keep going back to that thing because I'm a slave to that thing. That's what sin is. It's enslavement. So we've seen the overview. We've seen some of the statistics. And we're aware, because we talk about it, we sing about it, that Jesus sets us free. Amen? Jesus sets us free from slavery, which means, in the language of America, there is a heavenly emancipation proclamation. So Satan 
holds slaves, but he actually has no right to. You follow me? The only way he can hold a slave is if that slave willingly is held because he has no right to because the king of the universe has said, you, you can't do this. I'm setting people free. Now just imagine, if you were back at the time of Revolutionary War, imagine if you had suffered oppression from a government and you fought and gained independence from them and then by choice you stayed under their control. Imagine you're a slave on a plantation and you've been abused and belittled and beaten and freedom is granted to you and you choose to stay on the plantation. That's what I'm talking about when I say, where's the protest? That's what's happening spiritually. God says you're free. We celebrate freedom. And then so many just are content to say, yeah, I'm kind of stuck in this thing, huh? Maybe someday I'll get free. So where is the protest? I invite you, as we think about freedom on uh, this Independence Day, one invitation I want to make is to get really riled up in your heart in joining the protest against slave master Satan. I'm not going to live this way. I'm not going to live enslaved as if there's no better option. Like, I just have to resolve myself to being bound and captive and addicted. And we've read some statistics, but you know it's just impossible to get statistics on every way Satan has us chained. How do you get statistics on a liar? Can you trust those? I looked them up anyway. It, so, statisticians say that 90% of all profiles on, on uh, dating sites lie. So, so, maybe not a very good place to get accurate information. But how do you get statistics on, on the pride, the love of self that enslaves me, the harsh words that destroy relationships that I'm a slave to? I can't stop doing this. The hate, the jealousy, the covetousness. How do, how do I even measure how much that has a hold on my life? Well, I say let's join the protest. That's not how we have to live. But we can't stop there. That's the depressing stuff. So the answer is freedom. And true freedom is explained, maybe the best way it's explained, ironically, is in slavery to God. So as uncomfortable as we might be with the concepts of slavery, they get even more weird when we apply them to God. Because the character of God is so not like a slave master. So we might even resist and push back and say, whatever that language means in Scripture, I don't think it fits the God of love. But I just want to challenge you, don't be so quick to push back because this concept of slavery to God, I've wrestled with it all week. I think there's so much freedom here. So let's look at slavery to God. Quick overview, we already looked at a bunch of verses in Romans 6. We're still in Romans 6. We saw in verse 4 that slavery to God is connected with newness of life. It means in verse 10, this is what it looks like to be a slave to God. It says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So slavery to God is living my life to God. I'm not letting any chain hold me back from living my life to God. Verse 13, we've already read, but it con contains thoughts here that apply to slavery to God. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So slavery to God looks like being alive and using every bit of your body, your time, your, your influence for the sake of righteousness. That, that's a picture of slavery to God. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So slavery to God is a, is a thing of obedience. I obey the master. Slavery to God, looking at verse 20, we get a picture here of freedom because it says, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. God doesn't make everyone slaves to righteousness. He lets those who choose righteousness be bound to righteousness. So we are choosing as slaves to God to take on new rules to live by. It's called the law of liberty. It actually sets us free. And then as we continue, verse 18 and 19, well, actually, if we back up to verse 18 and 19, it says, And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So slavery to God leads to sanctification. You know what that is? It's becoming like Christ. Becoming holy. That's what, a picture of slavery to God is becoming like Jesus. And the end of slavery to God, we see in verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So slavery to God, as offenses as, as the term slavery might be, its overview in Scripture sounds pretty good to me. It binds me to God, makes me fully alive, makes me go on a road to sanctification to become more like Jesus, and its end is eternal life. So that's a picture of slavery to God. Still, it's kind of hard for us to swallow the term slavery to God. You know, it's, it's clearly taught in Scripture, but it actually might be stronger, a stronger biblical teaching than any of our Bible translations led on. It seems that Bible translators also had an issue with the word slavery. So we're going to look at that word. There's one New Testament word for slavery. The word is doulos, and it's used 126 times in the New Testament. Very rarely is it translated slave. Often it's translated bondservant or servant, but not slave, because the translators had a hard time saying, you're slaves to King Jesus. It's, not a, a, it's a term we shy away from. But some people who know it a lot better than me and studied a lot harder say that every time we use that word doulos, it should be slave because there's actually six words, New Testament words in Greek, for servant. So if a translator or if, if a writer wanted to indicate servant, he had six words to choose. He wouldn't use the one word that means slave. So this is what John MacArthur says. I heard it in sermon, but he's also written it in book. It says, this word doulos in the Greek should never be translated anything but slave. Never. So here are some familiar verses that would sound a little different. 
Help me with this verse. Matthew 25.21 says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's doulos. Well done, my good and faithful slave. John 15.20 says, A servant, doulos, is not greater than his master. Luke 17.10 says, We are unworthy servants, doulos. We have only done what is our duty. If you want to follow along with all these, so there's a sermon blog that has every one of these things in it. So you just go to PastorRyanRogers.com, go on the sermon blog, and it has more detail and a lot more clarity, and the sentences make more sense than I'm making right now. But you don't have to take notes. Just get them right there. But notice, notice these words. So this is, we're familiar with the book of Revelation. We love that book. The first verse, also repeated in the last chapter, says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, doulos, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant, doulos, John. So the book of Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ, begins by John saying, God revealed something to his slave. Maybe we think that's just a passing thing, like after he comes, he's going to set us free. This is Revelation 22, verse 3. This is a picture of heaven and it's a beautiful picture. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing accursed. It's going to be perfect. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, doulos, will worship him. It is not a temporary arrangement because King Jesus wasn't strong enough to free us. It's actually the relationship, master-slave, it's the relationship he's called us into. There's some things, there's some associations we need to lose, but this is the picture he's, he's making. In eternity, there'll be no more curse, and the slaves of God will worship him. Philippians 2.7, when it talks about Jesus, it says, have this mind in you, this like Christ. It says he emptied himself, taking on the very form of a servant, doulos, and we should be like that, it says. So these are pictures of what it means to, uh, in the Bible, we, we, we have the word servant. Maybe more correctly we should understand slave. Like what it says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. That's the verb form of doulos. No one can be enslaved to two masters. In Acts 2, when, when they're preaching and, and they quote Joel and they say, hey, I'll pour out my spirit on my male servants and my maid servants as doulos. Even when the demons-possessed person spoke and says in, in Acts 16, and they cry out and say, these men are servants of the Most High God. Even the demon knew they're slaves. They use the word doulos. So the books of Romans, James, Jude, Philippians, Titus, and Revelation, every one of them, the very first verse, the writers identify themselves as the slaves of God. So I know we're still uncomfortable with it, here are some clarifications. So I have some clarifications on the screen. So it's not, I don't know if you can see them, it's not a perfect illustration or a perfect description. If you look back at, at Romans 6, verse 19, you can see Paul himself, the slave of God, squirm just a little bit in using the term. Because at the end of verse 18, he says, having become slaves of righteousness, and then he pauses, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because your natural limitations. 
So he pauses and adds in there, when I say slaves of righteousness, he says, I'm speaking in human terms, so hold on. It's not a perfect description. And here are some clarifications of why it's not a perfect description. So clarification number one, God is not the receiver dependent on the slave. He's the giver that the slaves depend on. You're familiar with the verse in Acts in the sermon where he says, God, um, God who made the world and everything in it, he doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the giver. So the slave master in our minds, in our association with uh, cruel slavery, he is the taker. He wants something, and so he owns the slave, and he takes their free labor to benefit him. It's the opposite with God. God is the giver, and he has a relationship with his slaves where he actually gives everything to them. The master is not dependent on the slaves. The slave is fully dependent on the master. And that's why Romans 6 can end with the words, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're struggling with the concept of of God as a master and us as a slave, know that that does not mean in any way that he's dependent on you. It actually means that we are completely dependent on our master. That's clarification number one. And it starts to become a really good thing. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in being dependent on God. And then clarification number two, the character of God is incompatible with the cruelty of a slave master. So there are some things we have to shed in our idea of a slave master. Here are some of them. Any idea of abuse, injustice, prejudice, cruelty, coercion, force, chains, belittling, low social status, all those associations, they don't work with slavery to God. Because we know something about God. Uh, John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And he's not just love as Savior, he's love as Master. He's not just love hanging on the cross, he's, he's love on the throne. So, Christ as slave master is not one bit mean. He's pure love. So we have to shed a few of these ideas. Doesn't mean he's not master and we're not slave. It means he's not that master and we're not that slave. Just as we need to shed a few ideas, we need to retain some. And I think this is where we struggle in free America because we think, no, we're free. We celebrate those verses about freedom. But here are a few things we shouldn't be so quick to get rid of in our understanding about slavery to God. Any idea of God being our master? Keep that idea. He is the owner of all things. He owns us. He bought us at a price. We actually don't have personal property. We belong to him and everything we have comes from him. We are not autonomous. We live only in connection to him. And we live as a slave to please our master. Like Paul says in Galatians, he says, if I was, if, if I was not a servant of God, I'd still try to please man, but I'm a servant, of, I'm a slave, doulos of God, so I please my master. That's the posture of a disciple is I want to please my master. We should keep the ideas of being completely 
available for service. So those are some things that we actually should keep in our concepts of slavery. We belong to God. It's a joyous, wonderful thing. It's not a terrible thing. He, he owns us. Everything we have comes from him. And we want to serve and please him. Another clarification is that slavery to God is a result of desire, not coercion. You can see that in the text. Verse 17. So Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Do you hear those words? You were once slaves of sins. You have now become obedient from the heart. It was not a whip that made you obedient. It was a heart desire that makes us obedient. Isn't God good? He does not work on force, yet he is the ultimate master. So it is not force, it is desire. We see that in so many verses in Scripture where God is calling our hearts to him. He gives freedom of choice. He wants us, he doesn't force us. A powerful way this is stated is by Pastor John Piper. You'll want to remember this. It says, He is not a tyrant that we can't leave. He is a treasure that we won't leave. He is not a tyrant that we can't leave. He is a treasure that we won't leave. And uh, fifth clarification here. Slaves of God are also his friends and his children. So there's a little bit of a parent contradiction here. You're going to see it grow, the, co the contradiction. But John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you servants. And that's actually the word doulos. I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, five verses later, he calls us slaves again. <laughs> but he says in that point, I no longer call you servant, I call you friends. So whatever a slave is, it is also a friend. And then it says in Galatians 4, 7, so you are no longer a slave, and that is the word doulos, but a son. And if a son than an heir of God. So slave is not lower social status. It's actually calling us up. A slave of God is calling us up into friendship and sonship. Now, there's an apparent contradiction, and it gets a little more uh, fuzzy when we move to the next point, that slavery of God is true freedom. Because what do we do with all the verses that say we're free if we're going to say that we're slaves? So, Beautiful verses. I'm not going to read them all, but the Bible makes incredible statements about freedom. And why would Jesus say things like in Mark 10, 45, I did not come to serve, but, or I did not come to be served, but to serve. Why would a master say something like that? I didn't come to be served. I came to serve if he really wants us to be his slaves. And why would Paul write things like there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, if we're actually slaves of God. There's a verse. I know I have a lot of verses today. This is in 1 Peter 2.16. It's incredible. The resolution to all that is not that we choose between slavery to God or freedom, but slavery to God is freedom. We are not free from God. We are free in God, and that's the only place we're free. It's not autonomous, like I need to get away and be over here. There's freedom here. 
And that's the only place you can find it. So here's the answer in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to what it says. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, doulos, of God. Did you catch that? He said, live as people who are free. Then he further defined what that means, living as slaves of God. When you press Peter on what it means to live as freedom, he says, here it is, the pinnacle, living as a slave to God. So here, here's the uh, shift in thought that I invite you into this Independence Day. Can you see it? So we think as Americans that freedoms e freedom equals independence. And we're wrong. Freedom does not equal independence. You ask a baby who needs his mother's milk what freedom is, if they could talk, they would not say, put me out in that field so I can be independent. That is not freedom, that's death to the baby that needs their mama. You, you try to go out in the mountains and live completely, 100% independent. That means you have to invent all your own technology, grow all your own produce. You can't rely on the, the production or wisdom or understanding of anyone in history or anyone in modern day. That is not freedom. That knocks you back to the Stone Age. You are enslaved to your limitations. Freedom is not independence. And we boast about it and we celebrate it and we're going to blast fireworks about it. But I'll tell you what, it's a bit ironic that we want to do things like raise the age of adulthood. And we want to stay with our mom and dad and have them pay for everything until our mid-30s. And yet we call ourselves independent. I think it's a selective independent. See, we actually don't want to be independent. We like the idea and we say that freedom equals independence. But we depend on so many things, and this interdependence is the best way to live. So freedom is not independence. Put a space between the N and the D. There's freedom in dependence. That's where freedom is. Freedom is not independence. It is 100% dependence on God. When we are in him and he's supplying all of our emotional needs in our life and our breath and our joy and our energy and our purity, then we're really free to live. We get a little off as Americans on wanting to be so independent and it hurts us spiritually because there's no freedom apart from God. So I want to make invitations. The first is, I invite you to join the protest. Be intolerant, completely intolerant of whatever bondage Satan claims on your life. This Independence Day, hey, tomorrow we're going to celebrate independence. One thing that you want to be independent from is sin. All right? So as you celebrate, in whatever way you celebrate, as you boast of freedom and, and, and uh, are thankful for all the freedoms you have around you, I invite you to have a very stubborn heart towards sin that says no more. Like, I'm crucifying self this July 4 or 3. <laughs> Go for it now. I'm not moving in to another week in slavery to God. You want to take that invitation? Here's the other invitation, is that you embrace the concept of slavery to God. I want to end with this verse. Remember I read to you the verse, well done, my good and faithful slave, right? It says you've been faithful in these things and you'll be faithful in these things. You know how the verse ends? talking about slaves, and it says, enter into the joy of your master. 
Have you ever thought about how countercultural that verse is with slavery? It's talking about you being slaves and you have a, have a master, and it invites the slaves who are faithful to enter into the joy of their master. So I invite you to wrestle with the concept of God as the master and you as a slave and enter into the joy of being completely dependent on God. We're talking about restoration. This 10 weeks of summer is all about God restoring our soul. And here's how freedom relates to that. It's that some of us are so exhausted by trying to do it all ourselves. You can't do it, and you're failing at it, and you're trying to keep it up, and it's, it's wearing you out. When Jesus actually says, John 15, you can do nothing apart from me. Paul says, Philippians 3.13, you can do all things through Christ. He's actually inviting us to give up that exhausting effort of doing it ourselves and live completely dependent on him. That's where true freedom is. So I invite you, enter into the joy of your master. And we're going to make those commitments now as we listen to a song, and then Lee is going to send us away with a blessing. Thanks for listening to this message from the Palmer Seventh-day Adventist Church. Find us online at palmerak.adventistchurch.org and at pastorryanrogers.com.